Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Oksanya. Hi folks, welcome to Retirementals. I am really excited about my guest today and the conversation that we are about to have. Um, Catherine Williams is Vice President and Head of Advisor Practice Management at Dimensional and the host of Managing Your Practice podcast. Catherine, welcome to Retirementals. Hi, Abraham. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So as I was saying to you before the, 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 the call or before we went live, I am a big fan of your podcast. I have binged, um, you know, all the episodes this year and I'm looking forward to, um, you know, what you've got in store. Um, I really want to have a, a conversation with you today about some of the great work that you've been doing with financial advisors um, in the US and the, the latest studies, the dimensional benchmarking studies that um, you've, you've recently published. But before we dive into all of that, um, do you want to give us a little bit of a background, um, you know, about yourself, how you got into to the industry and the work that you do today with um, dimensional? I'd be happy to, and and by the time I'm done, you'll you'll get a sense of how old I am. <laughs> I've been doing this for a while, but you know, I I really I sort of stumbled into the industry, which I think a lot of people maybe say here and there. Uh, I was a broadcast journalism major, and needed I know the irony, right? Uh, I needed to pay some bills, and so I took a job at a small cap value stock picking shop, which you know, if you know anything about dimensionals investment uh, <laughs> discipline, uh, you, the irony is, is there for sure. Um, but it was a great place, really interesting place to sort of cut my teeth on the industry here in the US. Um, you know, living and dying by your performance uh, really it reveals, uh, I think a lot about your own internal character and fortitude, if you will. But uh, very, you know, pretty quickly after that, moved to an, an an investment advisory firm in the Seattle area. I was there nearly 15 years, and that firm during my time there grew from about 300 million to over a billion, and we did that both wow. organically as well as through acquisition. So again, rapid learning, a huge, huge learning curve there, and I was COO there for a handful of years. So just, you know, I always have such an appreciation for how advisors are navigating their businesses today and what that takes. So that was that was certainly um, an incredibly informative experience. The last uh, several years, I have been primarily focused on coaching and consulting with advisors, really around the world, um, and you know certainly here predominantly in the U.S. And you know that that ultimately led me here to Dimensional. And, you know, as a as a consultant to advisors, when you can lean into the conversation from a place of data, from a place of understanding, from a metric standpoint, not only what's going on in the advisor's business, but how they look 
against their peers and against that larger industry, that really can help, that informs the conversation. Um, and certainly here at Dimensional, data is in our DNA. We have a very academic approach to investing and we take a similar methodology here in the practice management team when it comes to running two large global studies that is really the primary conduit for some of the data we're gonna talk about today um, and how we spend our time with advisors. Brilliant stuff. Uh, thank you for, for, for that introduction. So that's a great segue into the global advisor and global investor studies. So give us a little bit of a background to, to these um, benchmarking studies you've been doing. So the global advisor study is all about the advisor's business. And it was created, it started first here in the United States. Uh, this is our 11th year here in the United States. We began it a few years after that in the broader international community. So we now run this study in the US, EMEA, Canada, and Australia. And it's all about helping advisors understand what's going on across their business. So certainly we're heavily invested relative to the investment platform that an advisor has, but we recognize and we believe wholeheartedly that to have a long-term, healthy, viable business, you really do need to look at all areas of the business. And we wanted to think about how could we be a resource? So that study was created. Um, we gather all kinds of business metrics. We ask questions around how you're growing, how you're develop, hiring and developing people. Your technology is a big one. That's, a, that's been a big one for quite some time. And then we produce, so we play those results, if you will, back to the participants in the study. And in 20, for the 2021 study, which actually just officially wrapped with Australia, um, we had nearly 1,000 advisors in the study this year. So really nice sampling, if you will, a great cut of advisors. It is only available to advisors that currently work with Dimensional. Um, but, you know, some great insights are gained from that. I know we're going to talk a little bit about that today. The Global Investor Study is not quite as old. It's about five, five years old, I would say. And it's all about the end client. So it's a fully sort of white-labeled uh, vehicle, if you will, for advisors to gain understanding, get feedback, client satisfaction, what is top of mind for them. And we love nothing more than when an advisor participates in both those studies. Um, you know, I often, I was actually meeting with a group of COOs yesterday and I, I said to them, you know, this might come as a surprise to you, but you don't always know exactly what your clients are thinking. <laughs> you know, we, we think we do, right? We think we, we think we know, but asking clients, gathering their insights, gathering their feedback. We have an MPS, uh, a net promoter score functionality in that in that study. And last year we had nearly 17,000 end clients participate in that study. So wow. you can definitely get a little bit of insight as to what your clients value, what's top of mind for them, how, how do they really want to engage with you um, long-term in, in that advisor-client relationship. That's brilliant. Uh, the, the global advisor studies will, will be very relevant to, to a lot of advisors listening to this podcast, right? And many of whom um, use our TAM service, Betafolio, which is uh, very heavily dim dimensional. So give us a picture in terms of, you know, what you're seeing in the studies in terms of the revenue, you know, AUM and, and, and the key metrics, um, you know, for, for advisors. So a couple of things there, and, and I'll, I'll kind of, I think I'll answer the question in terms of how we, you know, we analyze the data in a lot of different ways. But one of the ways that we look at the data each year is this idea of if you think about just based on a percentage of revenue growth, 
Um, so take AUM out for a moment and think about revenue growth. What are top quartile or faster growing firms doing mm. versus slower growing firms? Mm. Um, you know, I and and I always want to qualify this and say that growth does not have to mean you want to be ten times where you are today. Right. Um, you know, a, a, a highly valued advisory business, um, one that is just growing at a at a nice steady pace. That is. That's fantastic. And quite mm. honestly, as we look at the M&A mergers and acquisition environment, th those are well sought after. <laughs> those are highly mm. valuable businesses. Yeah. So I always want to give advisors, anyone who's listening, anyone that joins any of our presentations, I want to give them permission, so to speak, to not think about this as, wow, I must be uh, growing lights out in order to be successful long term. So with that said, our top quartile firms on average um, had, an av had an average growth revenue growth rate of around 25, 26 percent last year so incredibly healthy about 10 percent of that was merger and acquisition activity so certainly here in the u.s that is really uh top of mind the bigger firms are looking at that as a true channel of growth so i always want to make sure we we put that in there the slower growing firms were in the just you know positive a couple of percent so you can see quite a difference quite a quite a quite a delta if you will between that so from there what do we see what are these firms doing um that are uh, creating healthy, vibrant, growing businesses. And we continue to see some, some strong characteristics around the growth channels. Um, client referrals is the number one growth in around the world um, for advisors. But we see with top quartile firms that they're doing a couple of things. One, they don't just rely on client referrals. They're thinking about COIs. They're deploying digital marketing. Um, they're, of course, as I mentioned, pursuing M&A. But even with the client referral piece, we find that they tend to have a way to sort of lean into that conversation with clients about especially with the clients they would like to replicate, right? We probably right, raise right. your hand if you have clients you do not want to replicate. <laughs> so you're not necessarily asking for, for referrals. In fact, you don't ask for referrals. That's a, that's a poor way to phrase that. But they're leaning into that conversation and they're getting purposeful about um, you know, creating a referral experience. Um, client, you know, clients want to refer and then helping them know how to do that. So we continue to see those characteristics really come forth with, those, um, with clients. From a business development standpoint, top core Tile firms have taken the time to develop their value prop, and it's not just something that a few people in the organization can speak to. Everyone in the organization understands the value proposition, they can articulate it, and it informs the decisions they make in their business each day. They've taken the time to identify their, tar their ideal target client profile, who they most want to work with. So these firms have gotten really systematic about that. And as we're going to talk about today, when you start then adding in people and technology and setting goals, right? Like you, 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 you have to have a plan and not just a plan that's running around in one person's head. You know, it's pen to paper. You've really mapped this out. We continue to see that. Operating profits do tend to be a little, the profit margin actually tends to be a little bit lower for faster growing firms. They're reinvesting in the business. Um, slower growing firms tend to, you know, tend to be in that 26 to 27% operating margin, profit profit margin, whereas the, the faster growing might be 22, 23. So it's not a huge difference, but they do continue to have a lower um, operating profit. And so, we, and we have continued, we've seen that sort of inverse relationship between revenue growth and operating profit margin for a number of years that when you really uh, in that fast growth mode, when you're really dialing up that growth uh, mechanism, that muscle, if you will, in the in the business, your operating um, margin might be a little bit lower than you might see in a slower growing firm. 
So those are some of the things that we definitely see from the study. Fascinating stuff. There, there are lots of questions in my mind around this, and I'm trying to sort of decide where I focus on. So I'm just going to say, so, so let's go. Let, so give us a, a flavor of what those faster growing firms look like in terms of, I don't know, AUM, you know, size of the firm. Is there any correlations, uh, correlation there that, that, that you can that you can draw in terms of between uh, amongst those firms, those faster growing firms? So from an AUM standpoint, it actually runs the gamut. And we, we have firms that are, you know, uh, small, what we call sole proprietor firms. And then we work with, you know, billions and firms that are in the billions and billions of dollars. And that's one reason why we pick the revenue swim right, lane, so to right. speak, versus the AUM. So obviously headcount, things like that. So what does that mean then? We we have to, as you're, you know, I think, you know, as you're, as you're asking, like, what do we ultimately get to, to, to create, what are some of the metrics we look at to right. really help firms understand? And, and certainly one of them that we, a uh, long time area of focus, this helps advisors, for, firms think about about capacity, uh, certainly their their productivity, their revenue, uh, and that is a what we call that revenue per full time employee metric. And right. again, this, you know, because we're not, you know, and we do we slice the data a lot. We geek out on it all year long. <laughs> and so with that said, um, when we look at that revenue per full-time employee number, in uh, on average across our study, that number has sat right around let's say. 312, 315,000, uh, and I'm I'm just using American dollars In here, dollars. Um, pretty consistently, and that and that that shows up, you know, as well for the unique um, EMEA and UK advisor audience. The faster growing firms, they tend to be, they tend to run, you know, a little bit leaner. Their teams are a little bit leaner. Um, part of that is they have dialed in around the technology piece. Um, they would, I don't know any of them that would say they've perfected it. Um, and they're, and we see a lot of focus in the study this year around profitability. So even these faster growing firms who have great pipeline, great people, great technology, they're still wrestling with our we really getting everything out of the business that we possibly could. So that revenue per full-time employee, revenue per senior advisor, which is, you know, in our study, a senior advisor versus a service advisor is someone who has that rain-making responsibility, right? They're, they're bringing right. revenue into the organization. Um, and that, you know, again, those numbers have been, you know, fairly consistent year over year, but those are some of the areas that we look at um, to help sort of uh, level out, if you will, <laughs> some of the some of the metrics in the study. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And is there a difference between the UK advisors and, say, the US advisors? I do in some cases, uh, but you know, to to sort of you know make a little bit of, of a joke about it. At the end of the day, we, you know, we all put our pants on the same way. Right. <laughs> like, like at the end of the day, I, and I say that, you know, because, I, and absolutely when I meet with, when I, you know, when I meet with us advisors, they're like, surely we're different than everyone else in the world. And, you know, UK, Australia, all that. And there are, there can be some, some nuances. I mean, I would say for the EMEA and, and UK firms from, the, you know, we talked about those top, top quartile, bottom quartile from a growth metrics, you know, that number is a little, a little narrower, if you will, um, within the UK. The number is right. not quite as high for top quartile, not quite as low. It's a little more focused. I would say certainly from a 
you know, what are, what are some of the challenges in the business, if you will? Um, you know, everyone talks about we want to improve workflow processes. We're thinking about developing our people. Um, I see a little bit more with the UK EMEA around, you know, hiring and developing. That, that definitely really kicks up just a, just a little bit. Um, it's, it's on the radar for everyone, particularly even after the last 18 months we've all been living in. But we do see a little, we do see some differences in our study each year. We do ask, you know, what are top initiatives that you're focused on? And that's one that might tick up a little bit higher, if you will, um, in the in the UK. So how you're going about solving that uh, can be a little bit differently, but it's one that's definitely top of mind. So so you 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 talked about these fast growing firms investing more, spending more in in technology, and clearly you can attribute you know it, you know a degree of their success to that. Talk, talk a little bit about about that point. So actually, it's it's really it's interesting. I I, I it's it's maybe even a little bit of Groundhog Day where I think every, each year we're going to go into the study and the number will be dramatically different. But the right. reality is, when it comes to uh, the percentage of revenue that firms spend on technology, and I'm not talking about human capital, right? We're right. going to take that out of the equation. We we gather income statement information, and comp is a separate section. But when you're talking about the hardware, the software, the you know the sort of the deployment, the training of technology, we actually don't see a ton of movement from one year to the next. And more importantly, as a, as a spend of, um, as a percentage of revenue, we don't see top quartile firms necessarily spending more on right. technology than we do slower growing. Now, how they spend those dollars, we do start seeing some differences for sure. But here in the U.S., it's been about 4% annually is the spend on technology. Again, you might have a, a firm here or there. Maybe they're deploying a brand new piece of technology, things like that. It might be a little bit of an uptick. Um, but for the most part, it's sat in that 35 to 4% range here in the U.S. And in the UK, that number has been uh, right around three and a half percent. So just a little bit lower. And mm. it's hung out there for a few years now. So why is that important? I think, first of all, uh, the idea that you must be spending a ton of dollars on technology to be a top quartile firm is a misnomer. That's obviously right. not right. the case. Um, now, with that said, as firms get bigger, we do see an uptick in the human capital side of that. So they may go from having a complete outsourced um, situation with regard to technology and support to maybe hiring an IT administrator. And then of course, you know, you get bigger and, and more robust and we'll see a full, you know, chief technology officer, that sort of thing. So that's certainly when you lump that in can raise that number over time. But when you think about actual spend of dollars on technology, it's actually been very consistent um, across, across the board. And in terms of, Human capital, I, I assume that then dovetails into this conversation about compensation. Again, anything we can learn from, you know, some of that that the the faster growing firms do differently than than the the slower growing firms. Uh, in terms of technology, in, sorry, in terms of people, the the team and and, and compensation. So, yes. Top quartile firms consistently spend more on compensation right. for their people overall 
than slower growing firms. This is not to say anyone listening that they must immediately go back. (laughs) Maybe they need to, I'm, you know, that's not for me to say, Uh, but we do see that. And so instead of it being 46, 47% of that as a percentage, it's more like 50, 51%. Like it's, it's a pretty healthy number. Absolutely. There's what you pay and there's how you pay it. And that is another difference with top quartile firms. They not only have taken the time to develop a, 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 and by comprehensive, I don't mean complex, but they've built out a compensation plan. They have a compensation philosophy statement, right? They're really dialed in about what they want their comp to say, the behaviors that they're trying to drive, the behaviors they want to reward. And so if they're in growth mode, we often see, you know, business development incentives. If you're on sort of the, we'll call at the house side of the business, maybe more behind the scenes, operations, technology, all of those team members have some sort of variable comp. I mean, it's not going to be as much as you would see perhaps in a, in a senior advisor role, but everyone has an opportunity to uh, to move forward from a, and, and capture compensation that is variable. Maybe it's tied to the firm hitting a certain profit level uh, or individual performance. So we see that year year after year with the top quartile firms very consistent from a structural standpoint we also see with top quartile firms when it comes to their people and i always say this because compensation you can have the best compensation plan in the world but if you don't have an organizational structure if you don't have role clarity uh <laughs> which can be hard to do when you're you know just growing rapidly or trying to catch up each day you know a comp plan is is not going to do it it's not going to be enough to keep people it's not going to be enough to really measure the the success of your business over time so thinking about team structure our top quartile firms when it comes to that client facing team clients are are not just working with one person they're working with at least two or three again depending on the size of your firm right, right. um but then on the the operational side of the business, you do see, uh, in fact, when we asked about some hiring trends, if you will, for 2021, they were predominantly in that, on that operational side. Firms, I think, you know, we saw a swing the last few years, maybe really dialing up the client-facing side. Uh, a lot of the acquisitions that are happening was to acquire that advisor talent or that advisor team. But we're now seeing where, and, and this, you know, I think could be because there's greater deployment of technology. We're all working in this virtual environment more than ever, whether we want to or not. Um, And so you've got to have people that can really support that and keep that engine running, if you will. And quite honestly, create capacity for the advisor teams to be able to go out and bring in new business. So that's definitely kicking up um, across our study. Now a word from our sponsor. Nikki Heating Jones is the Managing Director and the Chief Investment Officer at Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, discretionary model portfolio manager. Typical model portfolio service costs about 36 basis points. That's in addition to the funds, the platform, you know, the advice fees. Tell us a bit about Betafolio's view and approach on fees. Well, I don't think anyone that knows us already, Abraham, would be surprised to hear me say that in a nutshell, NPS fees are too high. Um, If you include the fund charges and the platform fee that you already talked about, we get close to 1%, I think, on average for a lot of retail clients. And that's before they start paying for the financial plan, which is the part of the service that will ultimately add the most value for them in their advisor relationship and experience. Um, So, 
I mean, my view on fees and Beast Australia's view on fees is that they have a real impact on current outcomes that needs attention. Um, and that's why we're building a scalable solution with technology that will allow us to keep costs low. And I think we also should consider the impact of these fees on advisors' businesses too. Advisors need to to make a profit from, from their work. They need to have a viable business. And their cost bases have been rising because of regulation. And the, the more cost they have to pass through to their clients for overcomplicated services in, in turn puts pressure on the advisor's own fees and, and ultimately makes it not possible for them to, to run a, a good business. So fees are really crucial. Um, and I'm really happy that we're in a position to be having a positive influence on the, the trends in the market. Good stuff. Thank you, Nikki. I guess an extension of this is uh, around compensation and, 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 you know, talent retention is what you're seeing with things like succession planning and, you know, equity ownership within financial planning business. Again, if we're drawing comparison between the faster, you know, faster growing firms and, and the, the slower growing firms, is there anything they're doing in terms of bringing in, um, you know, the, the next generation of talents and leaders for the business and using or not using equity as a way to um, incentivize around that? So a couple of things there, and I'll start with sharing what I what we saw last year for the for the first time in a in a few years, around why firms what the reason that firms reported they lost clients, which seems like a weird place to start, but huh. but bear with me for a moment. <laughs> so traditionally, historically, death was the number one reason why advisors lost clients. Right. Last year, and we saw it again this year. It was the movement, the loss of an advisor, um, or you know, and, and certainly that competing advisor as well played a role. So we we see talent moving, and boy, talk about a double whammy when you lose an advisor and they take clients with them, right? That's that. I mean, that's like the ultimate sort of sort of pain point. So these top quartile firms are actively focused on how do we keep the talent we work so hard to get and right. we've developed. Um, and when it comes to compensation, a piece of that that we often see kicking in at that some for those senior advisors is equity in the organization. So it's a it's it starts often as a way to really keep your talent, reward that top talent. But as I just mentioned, now you've got equity equity moving deeper into the organization, which is a path, one of the, you know, a succession path, if you will. It's a way for the founders of the firm to begin stepping away from the business. Um, we know statistically from our study that advisors would prefer in it, what we call an internal succession, right? They would prefer to sell the business, but we absolutely know that that's not happening to the degree that they would like it to. That, and that's where that M&A piece will kick in. You'll see firms come together to provide a, a succession solution for that founder or founders that are ready to monetize or exit the business at some point. So top quartile firms that are active on the M&A side are coming to the table and being able and, and presenting, if you will, they're able to present solutions to sellers that do need a succession plan of some kind. And in some cases, it's, hey, we're going to sign a piece of paper that says in five, seven, 10 years, we, we pull the trigger. 
in a lot of cases, they pull the trigger right away and they're off and running. So as I mentioned, you know, this is this inorganic growth muscle, if you will, is one that's pretty well built um, for, for the faster growing firms. It's not across all of them not all and and i often say MA is not for the faint of heart like right, it's right, really right. hard to do and certainly here in the u.s valuations are crazy right now it's you know as 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 uh as as uh, dave barton said it's frothy <laughs> so it's just a little like it's it's crazy that's right. a good word is there it. is there i don't know is there a rule of thumb in terms of what the valuation is, you know, multiple of revenue, percentage of AUM. I've seen all sorts. I, I yeah. just, I, I, can we glean any insights around that <laughs> or, or not? Well, from the study, we and uh, this was, I, I'll pull from last year's study because we, we conducted a specific M&A uh, module, if you will, around that. And so in terms of valuation, we do see, you know, it's based on um, a couple of different ways, um, discounted cash flow, right? Huh. Um, and then EBITDA is, is certainly a, a common one. Um, you know, back of the napkin <laughs> in up, uh, which I, which I often say, look, if, if everyone's on the same page and they're okay, like right. that's all right. But you know, you might consider a more formal valuation at some point. And certainly, when you're looking at and whether you're the buyer or the seller, there's two key components. One is the the valuation and the other is the deal, right? The deal right. structure. And then, right. you know, you've got multiple levers across both of those. What we're seeing right now is absolutely organizations, businesses selling for, you know, in the double digit kind of multiples. And I'm not going to name any numbers because they're crazy. <laughs> they're a little bit crazy, if you will. But certainly that deal structure is really critical, particularly if you are an organization or if you're an owner that says, look, you know, I want to continue to grow. Actually, I'm not necessarily looking to exit the business, um, but I know I need a partner, right? They're, they're at, at a tipping point in the business that says I either need to buy it, build it, or partner with someone to do it. And so that's driving a lot of this activity, which is actually pretty terrific because, you know, advisors, you know, we often say, look, you didn't necessarily get into this business to have to you know, deal with technology or manage people or think about bricks and mortar, right? You, you, you do, you take care of clients, you bring in new clients, like you, that is, that is where that's, that's your resting place, so to speak. And so for a lot of advisors, it's about getting someone, uh, getting partnering with an organization that can help them uh, solve for a lot of that. So, you know, it's, it's definitely something that's continues to be a mechanism um, for a lot of organizations. Talk about this, just a comment on this back of the envelope valuation method. Um, th there's a firm here in the UK that's pretty um, uh, sort of relatively aggressive around, aggressive is the wrong word, but they do quite a bit of, you know, M&A with firms. And perhaps one of the more thoughtful approach that, that I have seen is where they go um, you know, into a process with the with the firm they're buying, usually small solo advisor firms, and they work out what this advisor needs, you know, <laughs> in terms of their financial plan to work, and and that informs the valuation of the business. I I think it's it's fascinating. But anyway, I want to come back to 
investment, investment process, because Dimension obviously is an investment house. So we want to see if there's any insight that we can learn there. But before I do, I'm just doing this maths in my head. I may be completely wrong where, you know, you said firms are averaging around 20, 25% in profit. They are spending um, about 50% on people, about seven on tech so i'm assuming the difference right then the rest in the middle is something around what marketing um maybe some you know some around operations i just particular on part, particularly on marketing is there anything um that the faster growing firms are doing different or or better than than the others Relative to the, in on the investment portfolio side? Relative to their spending, are they spending more on marketing? And if so, what, what is it that they're spending it on? If, if you know from the research. I do. And you're, you're going to kind of hate my answer, I think, a little bit too. Because <laughs> the other area that we do, so we know there's differences in comp. Uh, to, to round out the income statement, we will see differences, for example, in, um, you know, we have custodial referral network programs here in the U.S. That, right. that are that feed leads. There's a cost to being at that. So we'll see some variables there. They Quartile tend to be a little more active in those kinds of programs. When it comes to business development and marketing, that is the other area of the income statement where we tend to see a very consistent number between both top quartile and bottom quartile firms. So just like with technology, we don't see a big difference in that percentage of spend. It sits right around three, three and a half percent, and it's been there for a number of years. But again, where how they're spending those dollars, we do see some differences. So on paper, it looks like they're you know, kind of hand in hand, if you will, top quartile versus bottom quartile. But when we look at top quartile firms, they are deploying dollars into those multiple channels I talked about, the digital marketing piece, which of course has a technology, can have a technology spend to it, but it's really on the marketing and business development side, it's sort of, you know, any resources they're deploying to produce content that goes out into their digital uh, either their digital storefront or their digital landscape. Um, we'll see additional dollars being spent there. They're certainly doing, even in the last 18 months, um, we still see events happening. They, a lot of them were, were very, uh, were virtual or even hybrid in nature. Um, just was, just, we just had an event here uh, <laughs> where we had a whole group of clients on site. And so we're all learning, re we're relearning how to engage in person uh, once again, but, um, but spending dollars in those ways where the bottom quartile firms uh, maybe do, you know, a, one or two events, possibly um, they spend the dollars perhaps maybe on some branding, but they're not necessarily dialing in around search engine optimization, lead gen, uh, some of these different areas that we see a little bit more innovation happening with the top quartile firms. Good stuff. Thank you very much for that, Catherine. So then investment, right? This is dimensional bread and butter. And we know all the firms you're serving are dimensional firms. They use dimensional in some shape or form. But again, anything that we can glean from, from how firms are doing things around that side of things? A little bit. Um, fortunately for everyone, I, I sit over and I get, I get to 
talk about everything else with clients. Right. <laughs> Don't necessarily have to, uh, um, to to delve in on the on the event. We have amazing people here that do that much more purposely. But certainly within the study, we do ask a few questions, a couple questions anyway, each year around the investment piece. And some years we dial that up, and other years not so much. Um, what we do tend to see with the top quartile firms is you know a continued approach to broad diversification. Um, we know from our global investor study that end clients, uh, while you might start or lead with financial planning, they do care about the investments, right? They want to know that you have the acumen to deliver on the investment side. They want to see, um, a, you know, a, a broad um, investment platform, if you will. And certainly for our larger firms or firms that are working with ultra high net worth or even family office um, sort of scenarios, we often see market neutral and alternatives and tangibles and some of those things really kick in for um, for those those types of firms and that that definitely shows up in in our study um, what I would offer is that when we look at the the underlying team structure and the the vehicles for for delivering that out to clients we tend to see a much more simplistic approach with top quartile firms meaning they don't have dozens and dozens of models uh, they've got a you know concentration in within the organization about trading and portfolio management they've really structured the organization to be as efficient as possible and it's not because as i just said it's not because their clients don't care about that and they want to be over focusing on financial planning right that that is absolutely not the case but from a business efficiency and productivity standpoint they know they need to have a broad investment platform they know that some of that may be you know they they've got outside managers they may or may not want to pull from but how do they make that as efficient as possible and the last comment i'll make we do ask about what um, percentage of clients receive certain services in the business and certainly on the investment side for the most part it's about a hundred percent of right, course right. Um, there's there are some that lean in more with the financial planning piece but the top quartile firms are very dialed up on both those areas and they're also then delving into some of those alternatives um, some of those other areas of, of an investment offering that just you know create ample you know additional opportunity to capture greater share of wallet with clients we know that for a fact with top quartile firms they have a greater share of wallet because they can meet the investment needs they're not necessarily having to the client doesn't have to leave you know a million dollars sitting elsewhere because the advisor can't can't uh, introduce or or you know manage a, a portion of that so we do see that greater share of wallet kick in as well too good and and this is a great segue into um, you know, the, the global investor study, right? But before we go into that, on the client side, so again, is there a difference in terms of the size of assets, the level of fees that the faster growing firms are, you know, charging than, than the others? Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's pretty consistent in terms of the level of fees that are being charged. We might see a slightly higher fee with the smaller firms. Right. Um, or the I, slower growing is probably the, the right way to phrase that. But for the most part, it's actually quite, um, in terms of the actual sort of percentage, if you will, um, of, of what revenue uh, or how, you know, the, the fee structure, if you will, that advisors are, are deploying. Um, 
with that said, or excuse me, with the with the actual fee percentage that they're deploying, fee structure, we do start seeing some differences. So top quartile firms are more likely to have hybrid pricing. So maybe they're charging based as a percentage of, of assets under management, but they've got perhaps a flat fee, a quarterly fee of some kind, a retainer fee that might they might be layering on uh, to, you know, focus around financial planning, for example. We do see some organizations, this is particularly um, a little bit high in Australia, the subscription pricing so think about huh. Netflix right we're all right. <laughs> we're all living in a in a world of um, you know subscription um, pricing and so that's actually starting to kick up a little bit and we saw that globally in our study go from about 22 23 percent last year to about 26 percent so it continues to kind of creep up a little bit um, the reason for firms um, you know introducing if you will this hybrid pricing is to more a few reasons one to more closely align the services that they're providing mm. with the um, you know with the fee that they need to charge. Again, that you mentioned, you heard me mention that profitability uh, piece kicking in for a lot of organizations. They may be going after a, a younger, newer, different segment of clients, and it makes sense to have different kinds of pricing to meet those clients where they're at. We often think naturally of the accumulators, you know, those Henry's, right? High earners, not rich yet folks. And, yeah. um, and, and you know, having subscription pricing, retainer pricing, those kinds of things uh, to get your arms around them and when they're in accumulation mode. And then when they're the kind of, you know, the sort of that target client over time, you might shift that a little bit. So those are some of the reasons that we see that kicking in um, for, for organizations. Yeah, it's interesting that that, that fee model is, is creeping up in Australia in particular. I wondered if that's got anything to do with their regulation, um, kind of, um, you know, this, this thing where they've, they're separating advice out from um, investment management a little bit. But anyway, moving to the Global Investor Study then, uh, again, just give us the, the highlights. Um, the, you know, what, what can we learn from that study? So... Maybe not surprisingly, I don't think it's surprising. When we look at the net promoter score in our study, um, you know, we, we have amazing advisors. So, yes. so it's a really, really high number. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that structure, we won't necessarily get into it today, but you know, it's, it's a form of, of essentially measuring client satisfaction. And in particular, it's, it is based on a single question of, would you refer? period. Right. Like, would you refer uh, your advisor? And how they answer that question denotes where they land on that scoring side. So we, we absolutely see in general a high score there. From there, we, uh, we measure and we can cut this across lots of different demographics and, and insights we gain from the clients themselves. What we do overall tend to see is that when it comes to measuring the attributes of their advisor relationship and of their advisor, the things that they value the most, you don't see for the promoters, you don't see words like fees and pricing. You don't huh. see words like performance. You see words like peace of mind, sense of security, trust. Huh. Huh. And you know, I, we all I know come to work each day with clients hoping that that is how they feel. Um, but don't discount if they, you know, that the, don't, don't, don't take it for granted that they're always going to feel that way. And that absolutely shows up with those, those top firms. And as a result, when we look at the characteristic, and again, we're splitting hairs here because that MPS, 
the, the net promoter score is high in general. But when we look at the super high, <laughs> those right. top, top, top firms, um, and we look at how they're running their business, again, this is that relationship between the two studies. Those firms, they've got super high MPS. Their clients are really engaged. They're evangelical about what they do. <laughs> Um, they, we, we, see a, we see a higher propensity, high appetite in general to refer, but we tend to see a little bit more of those, those clients actually referring. You know, when I'm presenting into a room of advisors and they look at these, these numbers around their clients saying, I absolutely would refer my advisor, and they're looking around the firm, room thinking, well, it says here that, you know, 37% of my clients would, you know, refer in a heartbeat. I didn't get, I didn't but get a third don't. of my clients referring last year, right. right? So, so what's happening there? And that's often a, a full, a different, different discussion. But we, we definitely see that kick up as well. And those top, top firms are typically providing some additional services. They really have a nice service offering to their clients. Again, this doesn't mean you need to immediately start offering things like bill pay or account aggregation per se, but they've, they're figuring out ways to really meet clients where they're at and think, and think about the fact that if they're not getting something from me, they're going to go down the street potentially to get it. Right. The last comment um, we do see with those those high promoters in our study, this is going to sound a little bit funny to say this out loud because of the sheer breadth and depth of everything that advisors do for clients, but we see for those top, top firms and the, the client feedback that advisor responsiveness is something that they really put a lot of treasure on. And and I, again, I'm sort of laughing because it's like, well, first of all, it's like, well, of course, but they really do put a premium on that and they appreciate it. We were talking last night at dinner. I had you know a couple of advisors sitting there. I, I'm gonna be, they're, they're in their late 50s, early 60s and they're frustrated because they've got young advisor professionals that are like, no, no, I turn my phone off on Friday and I'll turn it back on on Monday morning, right? And and that's okay. I mean, we should probably take a few notes about work-life balance from them. But it's like, wait a second, you know, but if clients are really valuing and, and, you know, we can have a whole, you and I can have a whole different discussion about how to navigate all of that. But we, it's 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 kind of funny. Like, it's great. And, and we've had advisors that see that result and really it's a it's a visceral reaction like they really do think about okay what are we doing particularly over these last 18 months where you couldn't go and sit across the table from that client as a form of responsiveness right like mm. you really had to think about how do i get back to these clients and make sure that they're uh not feeling nervous they've got that peace of peace of mind sense of security very much kicked in so there you go <laughs> the the thing that 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 um sort of interests me or amazes me about, you know, when I'm looking at this uh, investor study is that you asked uh, a question about the value of advice, how people value advice, you know, how they measure the value of the, that, that they receive from their advisor. And most people, 40% says something like the sense of security, you know, peace of mind, which we know um, if other 20% says knowledge about my, my fi financial situation, I think there's another 20% that says progress towards my goal, right? All that is great. And then you say, well, you know, which are the top attributes that you, you consider most important in the relationship? And, you know, on the top, the, at the top was experience with clients like me second was investment returns <laughs> you know so, so is this a conflict between what clients say they value and the attributes they 
they look for in their financial advice again i'm asking this in the context of you know everything we talk about the rise of financial planning you know let's focus clients away from investment returns and to their goals but every time you ask them these questions investment returns pretty pretty strong it is and i i'm i love uh I love that you asked this question and specifically, you know, is there a conflict there? Because yeah, you could look at that on the surface and I certainly have a number of advisors that have said, well, wait a second, like we, you know, that's not even where we start from, right? We, we are focused on financial planning. Like why would they, why would they, why would that be such a high um, area or, or area of importance, if you will? And it goes back to what I said earlier. They do want to know that you've got the acumen, that you have the resources, you've got the ability, uh, the investment accounts, of course, and your investment platform is the vehicle to achieving your financial right. goals. And so a lot of advisors will say, well, it's all sort of gets meshed together. Um, but that's why, and they do want to see that. And, and for what it's worth, we ran this study a couple of years ago across three different fielding periods. So both of these studies have single fielding periods where we capture uh, capture the data, if you will. Usually for Global Advisor, it's in the spring. And then we're actually just right now uh, about a week, week and a half out from closing the Global Investor Study for this year. So there are two different, two different fielding periods. But when we ran it um, a couple of years ago across three fielding periods, we did that to see if there was any seasonality, there was any market play, right? If you'd surveyed your clients in January versus in November, uh, no, they, <laughs> you know, like the market, the markets could be up, the markets could be down right there. We didn't see, they still want to see that even, you know, and, and maybe when the markets is up, it's a little bit of fear, fear of missing out um, on stuff. Like there can be different motivators, but clients still put a great deal of, uh, emphasis on that, but how they feel about the relationship, what ultimately galvanizes them and adheres you to them um, as a between a you know an advisor and a client is how they feel as a result of that. How they feel about the services you provide. They they walk out. We know, for example, widows. They have they they are uh, they have a they have a you know, according to our study, they have a, there's a strong fear there of, you know, a life event of some kind, which obviously it was a life event that caused them to, to be, to become a widow. Um, so that very much stays with them. The, what they most want to feel after they engage with their advisor is educated. They want to understand what's going on. And in many cases, it's starting from scratch, depending on how engaged they were prior to becoming a widow, but certainly even ongoing. And then they're also more likely to open up emails from you a little faster than women who are married or, um, you know, in a relationship. And, and it's not that married women uh, don't care or want to know, but when you know that about the clients you're working with, and we have advisors here that are laser focused in around women in wealth, uh, widows, you know, what, what's going, you know, what's happening, um, how they approach money. When you know just those kinds of things, right? How they want to be communicated with, is it an email versus a hard copy? Do they want, do they want an email versus a newsletter? Those kinds of things you can get into with our study and it can absolutely inform the client experience, uh, reinforce the great things you're doing, but also inform when you want, to, those are the clients you want to replicate and it's an anonymous survey, so you don't you don't specifically know. But this is why these these demographics are so important. But if if that's a if that's an area of pursuit for you, maybe that's a niche client, for example, you want to go after. Now you've got some great insights about what they value, and you can put that out there in your prospecting process. Your you know the next set of clients you bring in the door, and that's really where we see kind of the rubber hit the road with with that study. 
Wow, Catherine, there is just incredible amount of insight in in all of that so thank you very much for the work that you do for the insight that you bring to the table um, to wrap this up i always like to ask my guests how they approach their retirement now don't take that as an insult yours you look to me like you're in your 30s which you are i'm sure but just looking out how, how does uh Catherine williams head of you know practice management uh, dimensional approach how does she approach our, our own retirement planning well uh, first of all, you can edit out that part about looking like I'm in my 30s. It's very nice of you to say that. <laughs> That's not the case. Um, I have two grown children, and uh, I've been doing this for a little bit, of, little bit of time. So, you know, my approach to retirement has, it's, it's, it's been a process. You know, um, I often, people say, well, you've, you've been in the financial industry for years, so surely you must know exactly what to do and how to go about, you know, thinking about your retirement. And the reality is I needed an advisor. <laughs> just like everyone else. Um, and so that's, you know, that's critical, right? To, to, ha to get that, to find that advice, find that person, those people who can understand your situation, meet you where you're at. And that's been, that's absolutely been the case with me in particular, because, you know, I've had life events, uh, you know, whether it's moving, raising kids, divorce, all those kinds of things, um, not to get too personal, but they're, they, they can impact you financially. They can also impact uh, your confidence level about being ready for retirement. Um, we talk about this a lot, particularly with women and how we view finances and how what happened as children even that inform that. So mm. for me, I actually, I mean, I, I would say I'm behind the curve a little bit. Like I'm really, I wish I was further along. And so having an advisor that not only says, well, you're not as bad as you feel like you are, um, but here's what we need to do to kind of get you moving forward. And certainly, you know, taking full advantage of an incredible 401k program here, um, getting access to dimensional funds, I would say is, is a really, really critical piece of that. Um, and then just being mindful of, do I want something now that will create some short-term satisfaction versus if I put it away, it'll be there when I'm ready to retire and, and I have a longer term outlook. And, you know, I, I live life to the fullest. I love to travel. I love to do all kinds of things. And so continuing to strike that balance, that's a conscious decision that I have to make all the time because, you know, I'd much rather like go do something really fun right now. So I have to, having that discipline of asking myself what would be instant gratification versus if I put it away, it'll serve me down the road. And that's, that's something that I, I definitely, I'm still mastering. <laughs> no, Maybe that, there's some people listening that can put their hand in the air and agree with that. But no, thank you. It actually makes the you know the rest of us feel much much better. You know, if you know the, your humble um, approach to the old thing, it makes us feel feel better because we realize that actually you know we're not we're not the only one. Uh, you know, I'm not the only one struggling with you know figuring out how much you 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 save for retirement versus spending the now. So thank you for that. Now, for, for advisors who are listening to us, your podcast is a great one to, to find. It's on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Managing Your Practice by, by Dimensional. Um, where else can we find you, um, you know, catch up with your, with your work? 
Well, th thank you very much. And, and I will say, I will offer as an Android user, you can also find me, find us on Spotify and, right. and all the, all the usual platforms. Um, so I always, I get, I get, I get a lot of, a uh, lot of flack for, for not, for not being an Apple user. Um, but you know, certainly if you're in, if, you, if you're an advisor that's currently working with Dimensional, uh, we have just, a, I would say an incredible catalog of resources so much, you know, virtually all of it is, is initially informed by the data we gather in these two studies that I mentioned, but then it shows up, if you will, for advisors in terms of tools, resources, additional videos, all kinds of things that, you know, if you, if there's a particular topic or area of the business that you are focusing on, um, we know as we headed, you know, we're in the fourth quarter of 2021. I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but as you start thinking about yeah. your planning for 2022, you know, some great resources that can help um, inform different areas of your business. Um, if you're, if you're working with dimensional beyond that, certainly, you know, I'm, I'm out and about in the investment community, um, different conferences, things like that. So um, you can follow me on LinkedIn. That can be a good place to kind of keep up on what I'm doing. But um, yeah, it's great. It's great to be here and, and absolutely uh, excited to share some of our insights with you today. Thank you, Catherine. And if you're ever in London, you know, if you ever come this way, let me know. Um, and, and we can, you know, we can get some advisors together and, and um, you know, give you a, a bit of i'm sure you've been in london before but you know give you perhaps a flavor of london that you haven't had before catherine thank you very much for for your time and for your wisdom uh, and uh, keep up the good work thank you you as well great to speak with you I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you, thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.